Good evening and welcome to another episode of the Perceptive Podcast here on Game Wisdom. I am still Josh Bice and we got a great cast for you today. Our topic is we're going to be talking about the studio Mega Cat Studios, who not only make modern retro games, but also, I guess, retro retro games, with many of their titles being released with Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo versions. And we're going to talk about not only what it means to design modern retro games today, but kind of the process and what it means to be supporting these legacy consoles. So please welcome from the studio, lead designer, Andrew Marsh. Hey, how's it going? It's great to have you on, Andrew. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks. It is great to have you on. Uh, We've been talking about this on email for the last few days, and it's great to finally get all the scheduling and such uh, taken care of. Yeah, for sure. So, to begin with, since this is your first time on the cast, could you talk a little bit about what Megacast Studios is? Uh, Yeah, so we're um, an indie development studio. Um who make games for modern platforms such as the PC, the uh, Xbox One, and so on. Um, We just had Coffee Crisis release on Steam Mm -hmm. within the past month. Mm -hmm. Um, But then we also will do retro ports of the games that we make to retro consoles. So uh, Coffee Crisis, for instance, has a Sega Genesis version that released uh, last year before the PC, like ahead of the PC game. Mm. And um, we also do some games that are only on retro platforms as well we have a handful of games on the nes that are currently only on that platform mm-hmm. interesting and how long has megaketsu's been in business for um we've been going at it for i would say about two years now nice and that's certainly a very interesting strategy about doing these retro ports for my audience listening to this right now i'm sure well, I probably have a few people who grew up playing the Sega Genesis. I think a lot of them probably have no idea what that console <laughs> is at this point. Oh, I'm feeling old. Uh, me too. <laughs> this, I've been called old man from a few, at the ripe old age of 33. I've been called That's, old by a few people. <laughs> yeah, sa- same here. Same here. <laughs> so I guess with that said, I think my next question should be obvious. What led you? Uh, what led Mega Cat to doing these retro ports? I mean, just releasing original games for these legacy consoles. Um. So we got together and um, we decided that we wanted to make, like, when we were kids, we wanted to make video games, and it was always our dream. And so, what better way to do it than to actually make games for the consoles that we were dreaming about making games for back then? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're all really heavily vested in the whole retro community. And, um, you know, even before we were a studio, we were all a part of it. You know, mm-hmm. um, I used to do retro style pixel art and, uh, James, the owner is like a huge collector. Mm-hmm. So it's always been something that really interested us. And I think the only way we would have become a studio is if, is by doing it this way. Mm-hmm. And game preservation and kind of that retro movement, those are also really big topics. And for myself, I'm a huge proponent in game preservation, as fans of our previous casts or our previous Game Wisdom casts can certainly attest to. And that could certainly, I think that could easily fill a podcast or two if we get too <laughs> far into that topic. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm assuming that uh, you and who's the name of the other person at Mega Cat? Um, James is the owner. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming you and James both are huge supporters of game preservation. Absolutely, yeah. Um, we both, he, he's a much larger collector than I am, but I, I collect as well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm buried under 30-year-old <laughs> video game consoles at all times. <laughs> nice. If I had the room and the hookups for, I would probably still have some of my old stuff hooked up right now. But yeah, it's definitely a very interesting time in terms of like the greater sense of game preservation. I'm sure you guys know about GOG at this point, and even yeah. about some of the recent troubles we've had with preserving some of these older games. For those of you listening to this cast right now, of course, it was announced that there will not be a virtual console for the Nintendo Switch, which definitely is a pretty big blow to retro enthusiasts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I I thought that the virtual console was a pretty well thought out system to keep those games around without having to resort to like you know like pirating them essentially you know yeah mm-hmm. and I I'm trying to resist not to get too far talking about game preservation because again that could easily eat up thirty minutes to an hour but that could certainly be another cast with you guys in the future. But to get back on track with Mega Cat and kind of doing these retro style games, both for modern and legacy consoles, I guess what kind of I'm trying to think how it best phrases. Since you guys are designing games both for today's audience as well as for these older consoles, how does that kind of like impact your own game design? Like, what kind of games do you guys like to build? Um. It definitely impacts our game design in the sense that when we made... I'll use Coffee Crisis for an example because it was our most recent release. Um, When we made the Sega Genesis version, um, we had to approach it with hard limitations in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, The Sega Genesis is a 30-year-old machine. It's only capable of doing so much. And so you have to approach everything on the retro platforms with that kind of mindset. Um, you know, a big part of what I do, um, ends up being, um, taking, you know, great art and making it something that will be compatible with one of those consoles. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's actually kind of great that we had to start approaching and with that in mind, because as we went on to the PC version, we could do a ton more with it. You know, there's way less in terms of limitations there but it kept a, it gave us that sort of limiting mindset where just because you can do everything doesn't mean you should do everything mm-hmm. yeah and that's something that i've heard from a lot of developers and it's one of those very interesting aspects of being an independent game developer because for a lot of people especially students they assume you know if i don't have a publisher or people bring down my neck i can make whatever i want But that kind of freedom, as anyone can certainly agree, can become a little overwhelming. Yeah, it it will it it bogs projects down. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, you run into a situation where you just you you can never stop because you just keep putting more ideas in there, and it it gets really confusing and hard to play. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, having like a limiting mindset going into it is usually the best course of action, especially if you want to actually finish your game, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, for people listening to the cast right now, Andrew, with the uh, uh, retro port, like the Sega Genesis version versus like the PC or Steam version, are there any, I guess, gameplay or game design differences, or is it as close to a one-to-one as you can make it? Uh, There's, there's absolutely changes. Um, Mm -hmm. We, uh, I mean, because we have those hard limitations lifted, um, it, it just it felt cheap to just sort of do a one to one when when we have more hardware to work with. So we actually, you know, we built the game from the PC version from the ground up in Unity. The original was written in a combination of C and old assembly. <laughs> um, and uh, when we built it up, built it up in Unity, we um we're able to add new features, new gameplay elements to it that we wouldn't have been able to do on the Sega Genesis. For instance, um, we have a system where it's a beat-em-up, and when you get locked into an area and you have to clear the screen out to move on, on the PC version, it can roll up to eight different random modifiers out of a pool of 50. Mm -hmm. And it will change the way the fight plays out. Like some of the modifiers will make the enemy stronger. Some of them will make you stronger. Some of them are cool screen effects. And then we also hook that in Twitch and mixer integration so that when someone streams the game, the people watching the stream will be able to vote on the modifiers that happen. And so having that kind of interactivity and that kind of um, like some of the modifiers are like, you know, screen filters and stuff that you wouldn't have been able to do on a Genesis. Um, we still have, you know, we, we still take advantage of some of that extra freedom that we get. We think it puts out an overall better product. Mm-hmm. And uh, while you're talking, Andrew, I'm looking at the Studio stores. So I'm seeing some of the other games that you've either designed or that are coming up. And 
I guess uh, my next question for you, and this is one that we've talked to several other developers who've worked on modern retro titles in the past. I spoke with uh, the Yacht Club, Yacht Club Games mm-hmm. guys. Uh, I spoke with the uh, publisher. Oh, uh, no, I spoke with Abbey Light Games, who publishes the titles from Local Melito. Yeah. Who also does a lot of modern retro stuff. So, my question for you is with Mega Cat, I guess, how do you approach designing a modern retro game? And I guess to make that a little bit clearer, like, do you look at things as an, I, we're trying to make a game as close to, you know, the NES or Sega Genesis era? Or do you try and make something that is like in spirit or homage to those designs while still having more of a modern approach? Um, I would say it was somewhere in the middle of that where we want to stay true to sort of our retro DNA. Like the retro stuff's in our DNA. That's part of who we are. And so we do want to stay pretty true to that. But when we're approaching something on a modern platform, especially something that is exclusively being worked on for a modern platform, um, we look at it and we go, okay, so here's how a game in that genre would work out on the Super Nintendo. Now, what modern modern elements to game design can we add to that that will enhance the overall experience of it? Um, so like things like procedural generation and, um, you know, like randomizing elements are always great. We have projects that we're working on even for retro platforms where we're doing things like skill trees and, (laughs) and, you know, like just more modern sort of design philosophies. Mm -hmm. And that kind of balance, I think can be very challenging for developers who focus on, Again, trying to accommodate both modern and retro fans. Because when I spoke with both Yacht Club and Abilay, we talked about how there's definitely that challenge or that preconception that some of the harder or more imbalanced elements of retro games should still be around, such as the very brutal difficulty, having, you know, no saves, no passwords, stuff like that. And there and again, it's a very interesting debate because there are fans who feel that kind of stuff is kind of like the glue that holds classic games together, while other people feel that's kind of just like the fat, you know, of the hardware limitations and kind of beginning of design back in the day. So I guess for you, Andrew, and for James as well, what do you feel about kind of like those holdovers of classic game design? Um, I think that there's a place for them. Um, I think it depends on the game. Um, mm-hmm. If if it's a game that warrants a high difficulty curve, then, you know, better for it. Cuphead, great example of that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that game's difficult because it should be difficult. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't agree with the idea that that's inherently what makes something, I guess, retro-like. Um, I think, you know, that in a way it's kind of an antiquated way of doing things, especially if you're, if you're focusing on that before how the difficulty actually integrates into the gameplay. Um, and you're just focusing on it. It's hard because it's retro. Um, I think that is sort of ignoring like the past 30 years of game design. (laughs) Um, so I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't ever try to make a game hard just because it's retro. I would make a game hard because I want to make a hard game. <laughs> mm-hmm. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, I guess with Mega Cat and some of the games that you've designed for, now, obviously, with Coffee Crisis, that is a 2D beat-em-up style game. Have you guys released or are planning on releasing any games that kind of that don't fit into a classic game? As in something that we probably didn't see back in the era. Um, yes and no. I, I would say genre-wise, we, we're sticking pretty heavy to things you would see in the retro area era, era, whether it be something you'd see on old consoles or even old PC gaming. Um, we have uh, a tactical RPG we're doing right now as well, and um, it sort of feels like sort of xcom like classic xcom Mm-hmm. with uh how it plays and um there's definitely some inspiration there so mm-hmm. 
I think sticking to those genres definitely helps keep the retro feeling around. Um, even if it's an action platformer that has a ton of modern influence to it, it we still still an action platformer which has been around forever. It's been around since the NES, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And actually, that actually gives me a really good question for you, Andrew, about platforming design, because this is something that I've talked about before on the cast with other developers and just even some of our vlogs, that for a lot of people, the platformer genre is obviously like a bread and butter. It's one that it's been around since the beginning. It'll probably still be around many, many years yeah, later. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, especially first-time developers, they kind of view it as almost like a gimme in terms of being able to design it. But I have played, I've lost count how many platformers I've played in the last 20 years alone, but a lot of these games tend to have that experience of a platformer, but still don't feel as refined or as polished as they should, especially when you're trying to create a genre that's been around since the heyday or the beginning. So uh, I guess my question for you is with the, with that kind of like retro or that classic game design experience, what do you feel I think makes a good platformer from either a design perspective, a control perspective or both? Um, Well, first off, I want to say anyone who thinks platforming is any kind of a gimme is kidding themselves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like easily the hardest thing to make. It's like, the comedy of video games. It's like the hardest thing to do. Right. Um, I guess, wait, what was the question? It was, uh, like, how do you approach making a platform? uh, How how do you approach making a good platformer? Um, it's a lot about balance, balancing the gameplay really well. Um, like balancing the, the player physics. Um, you know, if, if a character jumps or falls too fast, it it gets a little hard. It gets a little not as fun to play. Like Castlevania is one of my favorite games of all time. But if I sat someone who is 16 <laughs> years old in front of that right now, they would oh, hate it. Yes. You know, they, they would absolutely despise it. They're like, why is my guy sink like a stone? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so, yeah, balancing those kind of elements out, I think, is important. Giving the player enough room to explore without getting too crazy, unless you're doing like a nonlinear game, I think is important. Um, always, always, like, even though you're trying to get from point A to point B, giving them something else to check out as they're jumping along, like optional, I think is important for that. Um, and yeah, just really balancing your difficulty. It's that that is the number one place a platform where it can go wrong if. If the collision isn't quite right or something is making it a little bit harder than it needs to be, that it, the whole mm-hmm. the whole game falls apart. I mean, the the tenant of a good platformer is uh, even like a, like a good difficult platformer would be, you know, the player dies a lot. But every time it happens, they know it's their fault. Mm-hmm. Now, from a control perspective and fine tuning that feel, I guess. How do you approach things like when you're designing some of these games? Because again, I've played platformers where it just feels like I have very little control of my character. And again, these little touches, being able to you know adjust your character while you're in midair, how fast they move, how fast they turn, it doesn't sound all that big, but they can have huge implications when you're trying to overall design the feel of your game. Oh yeah, if it, we could just this could be like a series of podcasts we do. Um, <laughs> yes. But I mean, because if we even just talk about getting the player physics, right. I mean, that's, that's an art form in itself. You know, that that's ever evolving. People are constantly doing it and doing it differently. And, and it works some ways and it doesn't work other ways. And so it, it, it's, it's an interesting thing anytime you approach it, because there's so many factors that come into play. Um, if I'm looking at a platformer, you know, I'm looking at how, what's, what's the character's size? You know, how's that going to affect things? If, if the character's so big, you know, this is how many floor tiles he takes up. How many, how many floor tiles high is he? Like, how much clearance is he going to need? And, mm-hmm. like, and all that's before we even, like, start really getting into, like, all right, now how fast should he move? And how far should he be able to jump? And so it, it's, it's 
a difficult process. Um, that that's that's the main reason why I think platforming is one of the hardest things to design. Is um, getting that right is not easy to do. It takes a lot of testing and it takes a lot of going back and doing these really small adjustments to everything to like make sure it really just feels tight. Mm-hmm. And as you said earlier, Andrew, it is kind of like the comedy of the yeah. game industry. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's comedy is the hardest. It's the hardest movie to make is a comedy movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess kind of. Uh, Continuing from this discussion about classic game design, I guess for you, Andrew, what are some of like your favorite genres? They don't have to be either modern or classic. Like, what kind of games do you like to play? Um, platformers, definitely good platformers. N- nothing ever beats that. Like <laughs> Castlevania Three is my favorite game of all time. Um, stealth games, really like stealth games a lot. Grew up playing Metal Gear, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and like top-down adventure games. <laughs> Great. Now, in terms of like what's available from Mega Cat, now obviously Coffee Crisis is out now. Are you guys working on any other games at the moment? Uh, we're working on a handful of PC games right now. Um, we always have a handful of retro stuff in development. Those, those take smaller teams, so we can usually like, disperse those out pretty easily. Um, uh, we have uh, Fort Parker's Crunch Out that we're doing with Devolver and um, mm-hmm. Take This, uh, the charity. Um that's something we're currently working on. Actually, I was currently working on before this call. <laughs> Great. And I definitely do want to talk more about the uh, construction or working with SNES and Genesis cartridges. We'll get to that probably in the next few minutes. Now, keeping with our discussion about game design when it comes to classic and modern, I guess with the – I guess here's an interesting question for you. Do you think there are now obviously with exception to like major genres like first person shooters or MMOs, do you think that there's a lot more room, a lot more like designs that haven't really been explored yet in the retro space? Well, I think yeah, I think the interesting thing about the retro space is that it's pretty self-contained. You know, retro games are games that were made a long time ago now, which is sad to say. <laughs> um so there's so much the ind- the industry and design philosophy and all of that has evolved so much since then. And so in the retro space, there's so much of that that hasn't been touched. Um, we're just seeing retro first person shooters come back a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I know 3D Realms is working on one that uses oh, yes. the classic build engine. Mm-hmm. And so that there's just so much modern design philosophy and things that just are, you know, an open tap for us because they didn't do it 30 years ago because it didn't exist. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I guess for my next question, in terms of a market for these games, I don't know if you guys collect any marketing data or research, but do you typically find that like older gamers are playing these titles or are we seeing a good uh, data or a good collection of like younger gamers trying to experience these kinds of designs for the first time? Um, I would say it depends. Um, with the cartridge-based games, it's generally older gamers. Yeah. Um, you know, because it's people that already own the stuff. Like that's there's a little bit of a barrier of entry there. You know, you have yes. to you have to actually own the console and controllers and all that. So, uh, like a, an acceptable TV to use with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um so generally that will be older gamers um with the pc stuff definitely is reaching across age ranges um you know i've I've definitely been we traveled a lot of conventions and i i've definitely been to ones where you'll always get like a couple of people who become your biggest fans of that convention which is like great you know i, yeah. I, I love it but they're, they're, they're the guys that are back every single day to play your game and um and it, it really is all across the board there. You know, sometimes there will be a couple kids. Sometimes there'll be a couple guys older than me. Um, <laughs> it, it, it really doing stuff on modern platforms, I think, opens it up to a lot more people. Mm-hmm. Now, keeping with this uh, discussion about like modern retro games, besides titles like Dusk, uh, Iron, Ion Maiden, there we go. Are there any other like modern retro developers or modern retro games that you guys particularly like to follow? Um, I mean, we, we, when we started out, it was like, 
in the height of Yacht Club mania. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, yeah, I love those guys. Um, Devolver works with a ton of great people that I was fans of before I even started doing this. So, um, you know, like the guys that made Hotline in Miami and that they, mm-hmm. they have a pretty good group of studios under them. Um, so, yeah, I would say like those guys, are the kind of the guys we look up to. Um, Yacht Club for sure. You know, they, <laughs> they, they're, they're the ones that showed everyone that like it's still relevant. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, speaking about Yacht Club and from like an art perspective, I know you said that you do pixel art a few minutes ago. I guess is it a difference in terms of designing a pixel style game for like the PC or with Unity versus doing something similar for the Sega Genesis or the SNES era? Oh, for sure. Um, there, there's so many more rules on the 16-bit stuff. Um, mm-hmm. You can only have so many colors on screen at once. Um, everything's broken down into little tiles. And so you can only have so many unique tiles on a screen at once. And so it's definitely a lot harder um, to sort of grasp if you didn't already kind of have a background doing it. Like I, I was fortunate enough that I had learned all this stuff on my own mm-hmm. before I started working um, with Megacat um, just as a hobby. I, I like to draw and I was like, oh, it'd be neat to see. Like I, I liked retro games and I like to draw and I was like, it'd be neat to see how they had to make art back then and like try to do stuff like that. And so I ended up just sort of learning it that way. Um, but it, it's kind of hard to go from like thinking about things in a modern way to thinking about things in the sense of like a 30 year old graphics processor. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, yeah, there's definitely some uh, things you have to get used to between mm-hmm. the two. Mm-hmm. I guess with the games that you guys have designed so far, what you're planning in the future, are there any that you're kind of running to almost like a square peg in a round hole situation of trying to get it working for the uh, retro legacy consoles? Oh, that's my job, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, one of the big parts of my job is um, I make that square peg fit in that round hole. It's because, it, it, again, like I said, designing stuff for those consoles is hard work. It's very hard work. And um, so a lot of the times what we'll have to do is we'll have to we'll just draw an image without worrying as much about the restrictions on it and then pare it down to something that will actually work. And so that's that's a tough time consuming process right there. <laughs> yeah. And. I think we'll probably talk more about that process and just the act of supporting these legacy consoles next. Before we do that, Andrew, is there anything that we didn't touch on when it comes to the design or the game design side of things that you'd like to bring up now? Uh, no, I think we I think we covered it pretty well. Um, you know, there's again, it's it's designing with limits, but because it's designing with limits in mind, but because there's actually limits in mind as opposed to just enforcing them yourself. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it's just an interesting way to w- approach things. Mm. I guess this next question will probably be a good segue then into discussing about the support. Again, we've talked about the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo. Do you guys release for any other legacy consoles? Um, the original Nintendo Entertainment System. That's, uh, that's actually <laughs> what we have the most stuff for. Um, and that's my favorite console, personally. <laughs> Um, uh, yes. It's also my favorite console to, to do design for. It's the hardest one out of all of them, so I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Great. But I think with that, let's move into our second topic, and that's talking more about the logistics of working with these in this retro space, as well as what it means to put out a game like this. Because we've talked to a few people in the past about classic and uh, modern retro design. But uh, I think you're my first guest who actually is putting out games for those older systems. So. Yeah, yeah, good luck finding more of those. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But it's definitely going to be an interesting conversation. So to get things started with, I guess one thing that I'm kind of curious about, as we say, you're working on both the, I guess, the modern retro version of these games for the PC side with Unity, and you're also working on the legacy version with, I think you said, uh, C-sharp, and what was the other programming? Um, old, old school assembly language. You're, uh. either, you're either using C, uh, not even C-sharp, you're, using, you're either using C, or you're actually using the machine language of that 
piece of hardware. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure I know I have a few programmers who are listening to this cast. They're probably, uh, I think they're probably wide eyed right now when we're about <laughs> to have this conversation. Yeah, yeah. I've definitely lost contact with some people in the past over it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess here's my first question, something I'm curious about. Again, we're talking about supporting consoles that are 20, 30 plus years old at this point. Has like the process at all change in terms of creating a game for these consoles versus, you know, as opposed to like doing it at their heyday? Um, development wise, actually, I'd say all around. I think some things are a little bit easier now because um, we can use modern tools. You know, when I do artwork, I'm not using some really old paint tool. I'm using mm -hmm. like Photoshop or GIMP or something. Um, but you know, in other ways, I think it, it's a little bit more difficult now because it's obviously not industry standard anymore. You know, back then they probably had workstations that are, were hooked into consoles and they were designed around designing things for that console. Um, that's not really something that exists anymore. And uh, not like there's a ton of documentation from back then. The community's done great things documenting stuff, but, you know, Sega didn't release documentation <laughs> on how they made Sonic the Hedgehog. People had to figure that out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I guess uh, continuing from that... When it comes, like, this is going to be a pretty stupid question, I think, but as you said, you're working on both the classic and the modern version of these titles. Are you essentially designing, like, the same game twice, or are you able to, like, take some elements and kind of carry them over when you're working on the legacy version? So, uh, in a mechanical sense, um, art can be carried over. Um, that's about it. Because <laughs> um, it's not written in the same languages and but design philosophy wise you know obviously we can we'll use like the retro version as kind of like the skeleton for the pc version hmm. and actually that's a actually it's a good segue to this question when you're designing or when you guys are coming up with a new game do you build it in the legacy first or do you try to do it in unity first for our modern depends on the game and how big we want it to be i guess um some of the games that we have ideas for that are much larger. Um, we're going to be doing PC stuff first, like modern console stuff first as well, and then backporting it because we can still use the art assets and we can still use all that stuff. And so it makes a little bit more sense that way. Um, with Coffee Crisis, it, it, it's, a, it's a reasonably sized game, especially for a Sega Genesis game, but um doesn't have like a huge world to it. So that started out as the Genesis game. And that helped with our kickstarter and stuff too um and you know we went on so it really it's it's on a game by game basis really okay now this next question i'm not going to try to pretend that i'm going to fully understand it but <laughs> i know programmers will probably ask this if they're listening to us either on the site or elsewhere but in terms of working with the legacy consoles versus doing things in unity are there any interesting or unique challenges that you run into when it comes to the programming side? And like I said, I am not a programmer by trade, so I'll probably just be going, mm-hmm, mm -hmm, a lot here. <laughs> well, but I'm sure they'll understand. I was say, I, I'll, I'll keep it relatively simple myself. Um, yeah, there's definitely interesting challenges with it. Um, it's, I think, less about the coding side of it because there's great interpreters and and compilers and things that the community has written, like the retro community has written, and mm -hmm. we've even um, contributed to it ourselves. Um, so that that stuff, learning assembly is difficult for sure. Um, but beyond that, there's no challenges as far as coding, I would say. But it comes, the challenges come in when you think about how big these games were allowed to be back then. And so... The Sega Genesis, the largest a Sega Genesis game could be is four megabytes. Mm. <laughs> and uh, if we keep going back to like the Nintendo Entertainment System, the biggest one of those games can be is 512K. And so trying to make it all fit ends up really being the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's probably like the strangest thing for like any younger fan or younger designer probably listening is thinking about right now. Because as you just said, like 500 megabytes, I remember again back in the old days when like four uh, megabytes of RAM was considered top of the line for a computer. And we're now up to, I think we're up to like 20 plus gigs <laughs> when, yeah. for some gaming PCs. Yeah, um, most amount of RAM that's available on an NES cartridge is, I think, 256 kilobytes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a programmer right now just like got like a sharp pain in their chest when yeah. they heard that part. Yeah, and that's got to like that's got to save game data on it. That's insane. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, I guess another question that I have for you, Andrew, regarding, I guess this kind of logistics is. Do you guys, like, when it comes to the actual creation of the cartridges and stuff like that, do you do all that at your studio, or does that get outsourced to a third party? That is all in-house. Um, we hand-manufacture every single one. Um, wow. we, we own injection molds for the shells. Um, we have a pretty great guy that we go to for the boards. We get custom-printed PCBs to put the stuff on. And, um, yeah, and um, we, we burn games to them, solder them to the boards. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, for my own uh, education, what's PCB stand for? Um, it's the circuit board. It's a okay. pr printed circuit board. Got it. I guess here's one thing I'm really curious about. How long does that how long does it actually take to make a handmade cartridge? Um, if you get pretty good at it, a couple minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it takes some practice though. Though it's I, I have friends who are in the electronics repair world um you know they fix cell phones and things like that and they always get super jealous because I, I actually help with the manufacturing and so they get super jealous of me because i'm doing stuff for old video games so all the components are gigantic <laughs> <laughs> like if you open a cell phone up like the chips are like super tiny you have to have like a magnifying glass and then they see me with these like just inch long chips that i'm slamming into <laughs> slots and soldering together <laughs> and with the overall like aesthetics of like these releases, like the box manual stuff like that, do you guys create that as well in house? Uh, we do all the artwork, but we we get them. We outsource the printing. Mm -hmm. And it's great to talk to someone who does a uh, modern classic retro games, Andrew, because now we can both kind of wax nostalgically about the days of print and manuals, <laughs> right? And we can both right? feel extra old. <laughs> No, that's that's one of the reasons why we think what we're doing is kind of important. Um, we're keeping that kind of stuff alive because people don't have printed manuals anymore, especially ones with like cool illustrations and like <laughs> bits of lore in them and things like that. And uh, that's that's going away. I mean, that's not even going away. That's gone away. Yeah. I mean, it's you got to hope that there's like a limited pressing or something of a game for something like that. And uh, and so it's it's nice to sort of get to be we keep going back to preservation, but it, it, it's nice to be someone who's preserving that part of the industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one of the great things about GOGs. You get the collection of all the old game manuals that you can read as well. Yeah. And yeah, like I'm with you there, Andrew. I miss the days of being able to just like sit in my bed or in a chair and kind of read about some of these games. And about, like, the lore. Like, I always say one of my favorite manuals was, like, the stuff, like, the original Diablo and Starcraft. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those are great ones. Mm-hmm. And we're not careful. We could just spend, like, the next 30 minutes talking about that. Yeah, we could see yeah, we could have an entire podcast on sweet manuals. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> if we want to get, if we want to make everyone feel really young and us to feel really old. Yes. <laughs> that one we need to do live though so the whole audience can mock us yeah. while we're talking about it back in my day <laughs> i used to just read about the games yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> now one thing that we haven't touched on yet that i definitely want to bring up here has to i think do with the like licensing and the work like that for again for the younger folks listening to us right now in the old days, when you were releasing games on the NES, NES, and so on and so forth, you had to get a license, or you had to get a, a thing like a manufacturing or publishing license from the console. Like you couldn't just put your game on the NES; you had to get approval from Nintendo. And there's a whole history there of them actually requiring you buy cartridges, and that's another—that's a lesson for another day. <laughs> 
with Mega Cat and releasing games for these legacy consoles, do you have any interactions with like Nintendo or Sega in terms of making these games, or do they just kind of leave you alone at this point? Um, well, the nice thing is that those are all very old patents. They're gone. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, they stopped being worth renewing, you know, 20 years ago. So, mm-hmm. um, so there's no patents on any of that stuff. And so we don't really have to worry about that. Um, they are aware of us. We've definitely talked to them in the past and, um, you know, we're definitely not trying to be like sneaky about it, especially because we don't <laughs> really need to be, but yeah. Um, yeah, no, there's, there's really nothing you have to worry about about, about that stuff. Cool. And again, since you guys are creating all original assets and characters, it's not like you're trying to create the next Mario. You're going to be making Super Mario Brothers 4. For yeah, this. yeah, exactly. I mean, we're, we're not making their IPs, so mm-hmm. um, the hardware itself doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Now, as a bit of a tangent question... Obviously, with the manufacturing of physical goods, I just did a podcast live, like a, but for folks listening to this, it'll probably be a few weeks. For us right now, it'll be yesterday, where we talked about physical fulfillment when it comes to shipping and the fact that you're actually making a physical product. It actually exists in the real world. When it comes to that kind of thing, the distributing, the shipping, I guess, how do you guys handle that? Um, we all, we're a small business, you know, we wear a lot mm-hmm. of hats. Uh, we all we all help out and do that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's I mean from the bottom to the top. I've seen my I've seen James, you know, <laughs> owner of the company, stay until ten, eleven o'clock at night shipping stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure that could be its own collection of horror stories when it comes to shipping these items. <laughs> yeah, it's not easy. I mean, it's I mean it's still. When you compare it to the rest of the job, the easiest part of the job, you know, yeah, I'm not I'm not creating anything new there. I'm just shipping stuff out. <laughs> yeah, you're not inventing a new form of shipping. Yeah. <laughs> now, as another bit of a tangent, when it comes to working on these retro games, um, this probably would have fit into the first section, but I just thought of it now. What are your thoughts on, I guess, the quote-unquote fan-made games? When people will make, like, a classic game using, you know, licensed characters. Like, some examples would be stuff like the Kaizo games, I Want to Be the Guy, um, that Abobo's Grand Adventure, and even something like uh, there was a fan-made game for Pokemon and Metroid from a few years ago. Yeah. Um, I think... I'm not inherently against the idea. I think it's a great way for people to be able to, you know, express themselves, like make the games they, they want to make. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's important to always respect another IP if you're doing something with it. Um, I feel like that's the stance Nintendo always kind of took with it, that they don't mind mm-hmm. fan works as long as it's not disrespecting their intellectual property in any way. Um, the Metroid thing, I mean, the only reason that went down the way it did is, like, a year later, they came out with their own version of Metroid 2. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, at some point, if you don't protect your intellectual property, you don't get to anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, I, I think that's really the crux of it. I think as long as someone's willing to respect in an, someone's intellectual property, I think it's fine. You know, I think it's a great way for people who might not have their own kind of idea for characters in a world, they give them a chance to still express themselves. Mm-hmm. And again, that is a topic that could easily fill another cast. I spoke with uh, uh, Phoenix, I think it was Phoenix Point or Phoenix Studios who did the King's Quest fan-made oh, yeah. game. That, that was a great story. I mean, yeah. that, that, that kind of stuff always makes me happy. It's like, oh man, those guys really, <laughs> really put their heart and soul into it and they, you know, they actually got a a little bit of a reward for it they didn't get you know they didn't get like crushed for doing it mm-hmm. now getting back to uh mega cat and again the physicality and logistics of doing this stuff i guess and this also probably would be a good lead-in for game preservation i am assuming you guys have like multiple do you have like multiple copies of like nesses and sega genesis because as we said it's getting a lot harder to find these systems and the proper equipment to use them yeah we stockpile them (laughs) (laughs) uh i mean we need to uh if we're making games for these consoles we need to be able to show them to people and um 
So if we go to a convention, we're going to need consoles for that. Uh, we, it, it's crazy. We have a nice little stockpile, like <laughs> some Segas, some Nintendo consoles, and then a bunch of old Sony television studio monitors <laughs> that we plug them all into. It sounds like um, it reminds me of when I talked to um, the head of the museum, the main museum of art and digital entertainment, who also like he was talking about they have like just like a entire like back room or a warehouse of Nesses and Sega Genesis just lying around. Yeah, um, those things do not take constant use very well. So mm-hmm. <laughs> you need to have a nice little healthy rotation of them so you can keep them all in working order. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just wondering, Andrew, do you guys actually do like repair or anything like or modifications to these classic systems? Um, we don't really do any modifications to them, but um, we definitely repair them because I mean, we all were into this stuff before we started a studio. So we all just kind of knew how to fix like a busted NES <laughs> before we went into it. And so, yeah, we always sort of, we all sort of pitch in and help keep all the consoles together and working right. Hmm. Interesting, and I guess your you and James probably probably knows more than anyone else. Like, how like long do these consoles like normally last? Like, do you have an idea like what the average shelf life is? I'm I'm just asking this both for myself, and I'm sure for any younger people listening to us. A regular user of one of these consoles, I would say, with the exception of maybe the NES, um, mm-hmm. that console will last them their whole life. Those mm-hmm. those things are tanks. Um, <laughs> The NES has a weird design flaw in it that will wear out the connection, like where the cartridge connects. Um, you know, remember how you had to press it down? Yeah. That actually put a lot of stress on that connector. <laughs> uh. And so eventually that will wear out on you. And it's easy to fix. And they make aftermarket parts for them now. And you can get like a new connector for like 15 bucks and you can just swap it out. Um, but yeah, those things will last forever. I mean, they're they were built to last. Mm. Oh, especially the games. Oh, man, the games are indestructible. <laughs> yeah, those cartridges. I have a copy lo- of the original Final Fantasy that I couldn't get to work. I opened it up and it looked like some kid must have spilled like a Coke on it 30 years ago <laughs> and cleaned it up with some alcohol and it worked fine. <laughs> <laughs> and again, that's another topic we could talk about, especially with modern consoles and how it seems like it's becoming easier to break consoles as we get yeah. more into the modern age. Yeah, we're we're missing that whatever element Nintendo was making all their consoles out of. <laughs> yes. And uh, speaking about like aftermarket stuff, I again this is probably its own tangent, but how is like that kind of industry of people supporting and maintaining these legacy consoles? Uh the aftermarket thing's pretty big. Um there's a couple of companies who sort of like really run the show with it, but um, you can get, you know, aftermarket versions of pretty much any of those consoles now um, in various forms. You can get portable NESs or SNESs or whatever, and you can get a Genesis that looks about the same as the original one. Um, mm. But it, it's the aftermarket thing. Excuse me. There's a laser mouse for the SNES now. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. So it's yeah, there there there's a pretty big pretty big aftermarket industry out there. That's what I usually tell people when they're saying like, "Oh man, your games are really cool. I wish I had the console to play them on." It's like, "Well, you could buy an NES aftermarket for like 15 bucks." You know, it's just like a little box that you can plug games into. Mm-hmm. And I guess as a continuation from that question about dealing with the major consoles, does the aftermarket industry like have any pushback from Nintendo or Sega, or as you said, is it because the uh, patent or the copyright has expired? Nah, I mean, as long as they're not selling games on them, you know, okay. you can't sell an aftermarket console that has like 600 NES games built into it. Um, <laughs> at least not in the states, <laughs> um, or else you're going to have some pretty angry companies. But uh, yeah. the hardware itself. You know that you can recreate that. People have made their own designs for it since. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a question. I think this one could also be a little too big for this discussion, but something I'm curious about. A few years ago, I was looking into the whole uh, game preservation, the emulation market, with people, of course, making software to emulate hardware yeah. and. 
reading articles and hearing from like a few people who do that, there's definitely a lot of work in terms of trying to match like the specific hardware specifications when it comes to timing and stuff along those lines. With Mega Cat, and again, working with both the modern retro side and Unity and then the legacy side, I guess, do you run into any issues like that with trying to get like a game something that you coded for Unity to still work or be compliant with the Sega Genesis or Nintendo and so on? Um, I would say that the hiccups we run into um, in regards to that kind of stuff actually comes more from we'll find inconsistencies between like emulators and actual hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, like we, we'll hit a point in development where we like flip the switch and we start making boards of it to actually test it on a console and, uh, We'll notice inconsistencies there. Um, there'll be some inconsistencies with um, how the compilers and things for those legacy platforms will interact once it gets to a hardware point. And that's, like I said earlier, we'd made some contributions to some of that stuff. And that's why, is because when we got to the point where we were testing things on the actual hardware, we're like, oh, this isn't working the way we thought it was supposed to at all. Like, there's clearly something wrong there. And so go and like maybe add something or fix something to it to sort of make it a little bit more accurate. And uh, that, that's that's usually where the hiccups will come in. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it is an insane amount of work by a lot. And I mean, a lot of people to try to emulate those consoles accurately. Yes. yes and again, that that's probably a podcast number three easily in terms of <laughs> everything that goes into it. Yeah. Now. I guess as a going back to again like the physical side of things, I think you may have kind of answered this one already. But in terms of like getting the cartridges, like does a company like manufacture them? Do you build them yourselves? Like how does that go about? Um, with the cartridges themselves, uh, we we manufacture the cartridges. Um, we do like all the hand soldering, and we own in, mm. we own injection molds for the plastic shells, and so. You know, we have those somewhere with a machine that can actually do that uh, offsite. But, mm-hmm. you know, we'll just get a big batch of various colors. And that, that's the nice thing about only injection molds. We can get whatever colors we want, which is cool. <laughs> um, so, you know, games come out in, like red cartridges and all sorts of stuff. Green ones. And that's another thing for the young folks. They don't understand that. I just still remember. I think I have. Or, yeah, I'm pretty sure I have a few cartridges that are not the standard Nintendo gray. Yeah, yeah, um, Doom. Oh, yes. Doom came on a red cartridge. And, of course, the classic Zelda, the original gold cartridge of that. Yeah, it came on a gold cart. Yeah, so, yeah, um, but, yeah, we do all the manufacturing ourselves. Mm-hmm. And again, like I'm starting to feel very old talking to you, Andrew, during this cast here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's welcome to every day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I- I'm just wondering if the people wa- listening to this right now are either riveted or they're going, "What are these old guys talking about?" I'm just gonna <laughs> go play Steam now. Yeah, so it just sound like two old guys on rocking chairs right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I think I am just about out of questions, at least for this part. And again, talking about game preservation, I'm trying to avoid that because that will eat up. That yeah. That's its own oh, thing easily. Yeah, I can definitely get into that. Yeah. I guess to begin to wrap things up for tonight, I guess for people listening to us right now, you mentioned, of course, the uh, Fork Parker game that you guys are currently working on. Is there anything else you can tease for people listening? Um, yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I teased the Fork Parker thing, which that's in partnership with, uh, Devolver. Um, mm-hmm. we got, uh, a couple really cool things on the horizon. We got a, a really cool, um, tactical RPG that we're working on right now. Um, and we got a pretty deep, um, like action platformer, uh, sort of like a Mega Man X Contra hybrid, but like with some really modern, like deep, gameplay philosophy in it mm-hmm. and uh yeah those, those are gonna be a couple of the big projects we got coming up got another beat em up we're working on too <laughs> <laughs> cool and yeah like going back to like our first part like the games that i play from like local Melito and of course shovel knight that's one of the things i really love about these kinds of modern retro designs 
Because there is, a, I know, for people who've listened to me, this is probably something I've already said, but there's like a sense of purity to playing these older games where it's just very easy to see what's going on. It's very easy to get into them and kind of have that pick-up-and-play feel. Yeah. And, and I think what's very interesting with games like what you guys are doing, Locomolito and so on, of trying to bring some of those modern elements to these older, to classic design. Like, again, platformers, action games, of course, they're on the NES and the SNES and so on. But having things like persistent systems, upgrades, even like a style like of an open-ended, something like um, Odalis the Dark Call, mm-hmm. or I'm trying to... I'm, I'm blanking. I know I played a few. Um, what was it? Oh, no. I'm forgetting. There's this game that I just played like a few months ago. It was like a 2D style uh, action game where you can use magic to put blocks down. You jump on them. Oh, man. I think I know what you're talking about, too, and I can't think of the name either. <laughs> and I know. It's just completely blanking on me. And But the point is, like, you're designing a game again. It looks like a NES game or a SNES. It plays like one. But you're kind of retro or modern fitting these newer systems into them to make them more appealing. Or again, to try and create something that it could have been done back in the day because you guys are making it. Uh, yeah, um, that's uh, really a big part of our design philosophy in general. Um, if we want to you know, strip away any specific game and just think about our general way we want to approach video games... Um, like you said, one of the great things about retro games is they're very pick up and play. They're mm-hmm. easily accessible by anyone. You can, you might not be good at it, but you'll know how to play it. Yeah. Um, and so when we approach a game, we want to approach it with the mindset of, you know, these are games for everybody. And so it's got to be something that someone can easily pick up within a matter of minutes, be able to play it. Mm-hmm. And so doing some of the deeper and more modern design ideas comes in where okay so if anyone can pick up and play it now let's give a reward to the people that want to dedicate some time to it mm-hmm. yeah you don't you, you don't need these sort of deeper gameplay mechanics to play the game but if you want to get the most out of it then you need to learn them mm-hmm. and it also i think gives developers like yourself a yacht club joy masher and so on a chance to iterate on these designs and try something that hasn't been seen before. Like, one of my favorite examples was from Odalis and having the the UI on either side of the screen as opposed to on the top or the bottom. Yep. And it... For people like listening to us right now, again, for the younger people, it doesn't sound like we're talking about anything groundbreaking or revolutionary. But... It really was to see someone, tr- again, try and elevate something that has been done many, many times before. Yeah, um, I can tell you right now, there's a, there's a very clear technical reason why you everything was, like, your heads-up display was always at the top of the screen. Um, mm-hmm. You can't break screen scrolling horizontally on retro platforms. You can mm. you can only, or I'm sorry, uh, vertically. You can't, you can't break it the other way so it has to be at the top of the screen because that's literally the only way only place you're able to put it or at the bottom Mm -hmm. because that's the only way you can actually break the screen scrolling interesting so i think with that i'll turn things over to you for any final uh thoughts in a second but i have a few kind of like rapid fire questions for you andrew regarding classic game design all right and then we'll say good night all right sounds great so I guess one thing that I'm curious about, again, obviously you and James have played a lot of classic games. Are there any that you just could not figure out or, you know, they just made you rage or you could never beat? Um, games I could never beat would be like uh, Battletoads. I got close. Uh, never beat Battletoads. Um, yeah, I just like lost some street cred by saying that publicly, <laughs> too. Um <laughs> Uh, there was a Tron game for the Intellivision. I still to this day don't know how to play it. Um, <laughs> I, I own complete in box, so I have the instruction manual and everything. And I was more confused <laughs> after I read the instruction manual. 
That's the other joy of instruction manuals. Uh-huh. So they can even make you more confused about yeah. the game. Um, I guess another question. In terms of, I, I think you may have answered this one already, but are there any game designs or like, are there any dream projects that you would love to make for either a modern retro or a legacy design? Um, I personally would love to make a um, modern retro game that has more of a Ninja Gaiden style presentation to it. Um, like in gameplay as well, like you know, that fast paced action platforming with those really cool cinematics. Um, th- that's something I always really wanted to do. All right. Oh, I got, I got a second one. I got a oh. second one. Um, I also want to make, and I'm happy Iron Maiden's coming out cause it's, it's, it's opening the door for this to maybe be a possibility one day. I, I want to make an old school first person shooter. Uh, Doom two is like one of my favorite games of all time. Nice. I have a fan who really loved the original, the blood series. Yeah. Yeah. I love that game. <laughs> I bet he just uh, perked his ears up if he's listening to this right now. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that was pushing the build engine to its limits. Mm-hmm. All right. So here's my last question for you, and then I'll throw things over to you if you have any final thoughts, Andrew. Okay. And this is – I'm going to kind of play devil's advocate for a second. For people listening right now – and again, I'm sure for a lot of younger people, they're probably going – What's the big deal? Why should we care about these older games, these older designs? When again, like I always say this, but whatever day or time you're listening to me talk, 10 to 15 games have been released that day, most likely. So as someone who is a supporter of game preservation, who is working on these kinds of titles, like what do you say to people about why should we care about these older games and their designs? The boring answer is definitely uh, because it's a very important part of game design's history. Um, you know, it, it set the standards. And um, I think if it's someone who is a game designer or is enthusiastic about it, I think the more important answer is that um, games being made on retro platforms, we're not the only people to do it. It's just not very common. Mm-hmm. Um, it breaks down game design into its more basic principles and it enforces those and keeps those keeps those in the fr- in the spotlight and those basic principles are like the most important parts of game design mm-hmm. and so i mean and i mean if we really break it down if we if we just look at those basic design elements the industry hasn't evolved that much since then i mean 3D platformers still play like Super Mario 64. Mm-hmm. Three, 3D action games still play like Ocarina of Time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, there's, oh my goodness, there's so much about game design philosophy that we could certainly talk about that. We could be here all day long if we're not careful there, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I could lose an entire day to that easy. I could lose an entire week to that. Yeah, I think me too. But before we jump onto any multi-hour topics, I think we'll <laughs> wrap things up here. Andrew, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you this afternoon or talking with you. And yet, if you guys are free in the future, I think a game preservation cast would certainly be an interesting one. Yeah, it sounds great. Um, I would definitely be interested in talking about that. Um, yeah. Great. So I guess uh, for you, do you have any final thoughts, anything you'd like to say to the fans, you know, anything along those lines and the cast on? Uh, first off, I want to thank everyone who's been supportive of, of us uh, through both releases of Coffee Crisis. Um, our Kickstarter backers were, were great. I mean, it was because of them that we were able to make the game we did. Um, and so I want I want to thank everyone who's been supporting us already. Um, you know, I, I want people, new people, keep an eye out for Fork Parker's Crunch Out coming out this year. Um, that's, you know, great charity initiative that Devolver has been setting up with us. Um, and, uh, I don't know when this is airing, so I don't know if this is going to be irrelevant or not. Um, <laughs> if you're in the Philadelphia area in a couple weeks, uh, we're going to be at Too Many Games and uh showing some of our stuff off so feel free to stop by come say hi to us and uh try out some of the games cool i'm actually in south jersey maybe i'll see when you try and get up there yeah awesome so 
I think with that, we will wrap things up. Again, Andrew, thank you so much for coming on, and the best of luck with finishing uh, Fork Parker's Crunchout and whatever else you guys have coming out next. All right, thank you. All right, and uh, before we go, are there any places, sites, social media that you would like to mention if people want to follow you guys? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, Megacatstudios.com, that's our website. We're Megacat Studios on all social media, and um, check out Coffee Crisis on Steam. Um, Check us out on – we have our own Discord channel, uh, Megacat Studios. Um, Yeah, come, come over and say hi to us. Great. So, with that said, we are going to wrap things up for this week's cast. So, thank you so much for tuning in. As always, if you like to support Game Wisdom and what I do, you have several options available. If you'd like to write a guest piece for the site or be a future podcast guest, you can find information and links under Submissions Wanted. I'm always looking for new people to talk to, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can follow me on Twitter at GWBlazer for my thoughts throughout the day. And check out the Game Wisdom YouTube channel for daily videos, game spotlights, and of course our live game design chats. You can find me on Patreon under patreon.com slash Your donations can help to keep things going and allow us to add more content. And you'll find a link to our Discord channel, which is now open at the basic level to everybody. But that's going to do it for this week. So once again, thank you so much for tuning in. And check back next time for another episode of the Perceptive Podcast, where we talk about the art and craft of game design. Until then, have a great night.